This is Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me, I'm Alex Bennett. Well, as we ended the last chapter, I ended my days at Sirius XM. After nine years and two months, I was let go. But we'll get back to that in a moment. I want to back up a year because I have to tell you something that happened to me that uh, was kind of an extraordinary moment in my life. It happened to happen on uh, leap year, and it was leap day, the 29th of February. And uh, it's traditionally a day where if a woman wants to propose, they can do so. Usually it's the job of the guy to get down on bended knee. Well, girlfriend, Marjorie, a uh, woman I'd been going with and uh, pretty much cohabitating with for quite a quite a while said to me, uh, I want to ask you, will you marry me? And I said, uh, well, uh, let me think about it. <laughs> that's, that's what she says, I said. But then I finally said, you know, what the hell? You know, we've been together now for I don't know how many years. I think it was at that point, it was something like eight years or something. And uh, it wasn't going to go anywhere, but continue. So why not continue in a situation which especially gives you certain, oh, shall we say, legal benefits? I mean, if I were to drop dead, she'd have to fight for what little was mine and vice versa. So let's make it all legal. And uh, I said, yeah, uh, let's get get married. Well, we kind of... Didn't know when exactly, and we didn't set a date. But uh, later on the the next month, something happened. I was going to California, and I was going to California to meet my friend Shecky there, and she was going to go with me. And the reason we were going to California and meeting Shecky there is they were having a historic showing of the movie Napoleon with a Carl Davis musical score conducted by Carl Davis with a live orchestra, a huge orchestra, something like 70 pieces. And uh, this was a not-to-be-missed event, okay? And so uh, she went with me. And uh, while we were there, every time we'd ever gone out to California, I've always liked to do something which was a tradition when I, when I was a kid. My father would do it, and then later on I did it with my friends, and that was the, the overnight trip to Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe is about 200 and some odd miles from San Francisco, and you go up there and you gamble a little bit, and either you come right back or you book into a hotel, of which they are in great abundance. So I said, come on, let's go up to Lake Tahoe. And she said, great. And I said, and while we're there, why don't we get married? And she said, Really? I said, yeah. So we we started hustling, buying wedding rings. I think I bought her wedding. I bought her wedding ring, and she bought mine. And mine, I remember, I bought at Macy's, and hers was on a uh, at a jeweler jeweler uh, on Fourth Street in San Rafael. So now we had the rings. We're armed with the rings. Um, and we start looking for people who can marry us. So we found this one woman in Lake Tahoe who could marry you, uh, get the marriage certificates, took care of all the legal stuff and everything. And I think it was like $1,000 or something like that. So we said, why not? So she called this woman. And this woman then met us at Lake Tahoe by the side of Lake Tahoe. And uh, she had the ability to do it and officially married us on March 27th. 2012. 
and we have been married ever since. And so that's how I got married, and that's uh, that. That was an important moment in my life that has to be noted here, and also the fact that it took her <laughs> to ask me to marry her. See, I I could have been happy not getting married, uh, but I got married because. I knew it meant something to her, and it made her happy, and it was no, it didn't bother me at all. I, you know, I'd been married so many times before I was used to it. This was my fourth marriage, but I knew it was going to be my last. Come on, I was getting too old to go philander, and I was getting too old to want anything else but somebody as, a, as, as my, shall we say, final companion. And I never have, for one single day, regretted marrying her been a wonderful marriage. And another thing we did uh, during that time was we then found an apartment together. I'd been living down uh, in the uh, lower part of uh, Manhattan, uh, was was called uh, the East Village, and um, we started looking for places, and we found a place in Harlem, of all places. And uh, it was an amazing place, uh, in an old building that had been built by the Astors in 1900. And it was kind of a beautiful place, especially when it was first built, uh, called the Graham Court. And so we moved in there into an apartment that has, uh, I've, I kind of say it has like 11 rooms. But it was perfect. I could have a studio and we could have a guest room. And, you know, there was, uh, it, it's just, and it's been a lovely place for us to live. So all those things were happening before the firing, the letting go at Sirius XM. Now, as you know, I had been with Sirius XM for nine years and two months. And when I was told that it was all over, I was amazed because I just never saw it coming. Uh, I, I never felt it coming. There were no signs of it happening. But all of a sudden, one day, I'm being told we have some sad news, we're going to have to part ways. And they were very nice about it, very conciliatory. And uh, even on my last day, uh, they came into the studio and I did my final broadcast, which uh, I have noted here was on June 28th, okay, of uh, 2013. Um, My two bosses came in and said, gee, you know, it's been great working with you and we're sorry to see this happen. But hey, when you feel like it in a couple of weeks, let's have lunch. We'd like to talk with you. And I'm thinking, well, maybe there, maybe there's something else here, you know, or whatever. And uh, I said, okay, I will. And a couple of weeks later, I felt like it, and I called, and they said, well, so and so's on vacation, and I'm going on vacation after that. So after that, we'll call you and we'll have lunch. Well. I never got a call from them to have lunch, and uh, it's never happened. And I, I've always felt this deep desire to send off a note to both of them saying, hey, don't bother to have lunch. I've eaten already. You know, I mean, it was just uh, just one of the major disappointments. I thought, you know, at least these guys were being decent. And then they turned around and weren't decent at all. You know, they were just talking. They're blowing smoke up my ass. Anyway, I got to tell you, that this firing was the most depressing firing of my career. Uh, And I'll tell you why. Uh, Every other time there was a reason. I was given a reason. I knew why I was being let go. Hey, you know, we're we're going in a different direction. The ratings have been bad, and you got to go. 
or, uh, you know, one reason or another. There was always some reason that I could say, here's why I'm no longer going to work. But at Sirius XM, the only thing I was told was, it's nothing you did. And that's all I was ever told. There was never a reason given why I was let go. And uh, that kind of made it really difficult because you sit there and you're always running it over in your head. Why, what, why did this happen? How come this happened? And because they never gave me a reason and because they gave me a, a, just a, a, a statement like, well, it's not your fault. Well, you know, that, that, that does precious little good because at this point I was 73 years of age. And I knew what the prospects were going to be for me ever working in the broadcasting business again. To begin with, outside of Sirius XM, uh, which was kind of a firewall in my life because I was being sheltered from what was happening in the radio business on the outside, the radio business had changed completely. Uh, there were the multi-station ownerships in which people like Clear Channel at one point had up to 1,200 radio stations they owned. And so in order to cut the, uh, their costs, they would oh, have people do voice tracking and things like that for other radio stations. And so less and less people were needed to be on the air. With syndication, hey, used to be if you had talk stations in a, in a market, uh, you had five talk show hosts doing a talk 24 hours a day on that station. Once syndication came in, of course, you didn't need those people anymore. You just had Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and blah, 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 and they were on every station in America practically. And that was cheap. And I blame a lot of that on my union because in the case of my union, when they first saw a syndication coming, they should have said, look, you have to pay somebody to be on the air or you have to pay somebody to, to, uh, to be there in the studio, even if you're running a syndicated show. That's what they used to do with musicians and the musicians union and so on. And they, because I remember I told you in Chicago, whenever they, they made a big deal about the fact that, hey, you can't just play music on a record. Anybody who plays music in a radio station has to be a musician. Well, my union letting us down, just the whole business. When I came out on the other side of that nine years and two months, the business had changed completely. And I knew that I, you know, my chances at 90, uh, 93, at 73, of having anybody even take me seriously, except as that old timer, um, wasn't in the cards. And I said to them, I said, well, I guess this is the end of my career. And they went, oh, no, you're going to be able to go out and find a job. You know, you're Alex Bennett. You're going to be able to get a job. But I knew the truth of it all. And uh, the only jobs that I got after that point were I got two relief gigs at WOR here in New York. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, uh, my friend Walter Sabo was told by the people who uh, were running the radio station when I did one of those, uh, those gigs, uh, boy, he's a real pro. And I thought, gee, you know, that's not what I want to hear. I want to hear, hey, we'd like to have him here, but uh, he's a real pro. That means, hey, he's old. It's really, it's code talk for he's, he's old. So I knew that I wasn't going to work again in, in, uh, in radio. And so knowing that we had a couple of weeks before 
we were leaving Sirius XM, and you know, my my producer Albert Reynoso was also let go. So that only made the thing more mysterious. Before we get into what happened with Albert and I, let me just say that the mystery of why I was fired was so bad that I've got to tell you this, for about a year after being let go, I kept waking up in the middle of the night. And sometimes I was crying, sometimes I was gasping, None of it had to do with sleep apnea or anything like that. It had to do with the sheer terror of the way in which I got fired. I would wake up in the middle of the night. I would then start mulling it over. Did I do this? Did I do that? What did I do? You know, and for about a solid year, and you can ask a girlfriend, uh, I had a hard time sleeping a full night without waking up and suddenly going, I can't go to work at Sirius anymore. You know, nine years and two months is a lot of time. It's a, it's a real habit. And I wasn't going there anymore. And it played on me. My de- The dep- depression I went into was severe. It is one of the most horrible kinds of depression that I felt job-related in my entire life. And if they had only told me why I was let go, I don't think I would have gone through that, but I did. Anyway, uh, there were several theories on why I got fired. Want to hear a few of them? Uh, one of them was uh, my age. Uh, that uh, It's just that when you get to be older, they take you less and less seriously. And uh, although they can't say it's age, and in fact, when I left uh, Sirius XM, I had to sign a piece of paper saying I wouldn't sue them for age discrimination. And I had to point out to them that just having me sign that, because they wouldn't have somebody who was like 45 sign that, but having me sign that was age discrimination in and of itself. Okay? Um, but that, that, that was one of the theories. Another theory was that, and and this is the one that uh, a lot of people say probably was the major reason was, because I was making decent money. I wasn't making the best money I ever made in my career. I wasn't making huge money. I was making the kind of money that a, a veteran talk show host should probably get. And, and it was the money they offered me in the beginning. But by this time... Sirius XM had gone real cheap. When Mel left and the other people were running the place, now it was, you know, bookkeepers and accountants calling the shots. And so in comparison to other people who were doing shows, I was making a lot more. And that plays out also in why did Albert get fired. Usually, you know, the producer doesn't get fired. He just gets assigned to the next person who's going to do a show. But no, he got fired too. And one of the reasons was is I think outside of Howard's producer, he was the most well-paid producer in the building. So he went. So between the two salaries, I guess they got rid of enough money that they were happy with it. But if, of course, our salaries were make or break it for... Sirius XM, then I don't think they would have had a chance of surviving. But anyway, that was the other prevailing theory. And there was one last theory, um, and that was um, 
and one which I kind of think has something to play into it. I always was um, a guy who kind of tried to look at things in a very analytical manner. And I didn't think Obama was doing that great a job as president. So I was always kidding about Obama, and I was always kind of saying he could do better. And I always said on the air that I hated liberals uh, because, as Phil Oakes once said, liberals are 10 degrees to the left in good times and 10 degrees to the right when it affects them personally. So I was always of that thought. I always thought of myself as a real, real lefty, you know, a radical lefty. And I didn't like liberals because I felt that I couldn't trust liberals. So I always played it that way on the air. And I didn't like certain liberal organizations because of the way, well, how they their tactics were. And one of them was Media Matters. And I was constantly putting down Media Matters. Um, media Matters is a organization, you know, that deals in trying to ferret out the truth and whatever. And they're financed by George Soros. And... I think Soros and his people had something to do with it. Uh, I can't help but believe that that's what happened because when I left, I was replaced by a guy who worked for Media Matters. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being paranoid. But, you know, all the signs were there. So, you know, these are just some of the theories. And they're still theories. And I said, you know, when I die, probably one of the biggest unsolved uh, questions in my life will be, why the fuck did I get fired? And to this day, it still bothers me. It doesn't bother me like it did in that first year. I got to tell you, I mean, that waking up in the middle of the night was really something. Well, anyway, let's get to what Albert and I did. We had a couple of weeks to figure out what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And of course, we, we you, you do what every out of work broadcaster does in this day and age. You go to the internet. And really, if you may remember my history, going to the internet was really going back to the internet because I had been on the internet when we had play TV uh, years and years earlier. Okay. And so going back to the Internet was just, you know, going back to a medium I knew. But I said, hey, it's been improved. You know, the more people are now listening to the Internet. Back then, most people didn't even know how to get our program and didn't have the equipment to do it with. And uh, so we started making plans to do a broadcast. And I had a friend, Adrian Gruberg, whose late husband was Steve Gruberg. They had gotten married eventually. And uh, she had a TV studio. And now I didn't need the TV studio. I just needed a studio to do a, a broadcast in. So she said, sure, you can use it. Be fine. You know, and we figured we'd go on at like 10 o'clock to noon every day, Monday through Friday. And as long as we had a TV studio, well, let's just turn the cameras on and do a, you know, do it as a t not as a TV show, but do the radio show and then just sort of simulcast it uh, doing the, the video. And, and sh uh, so we started on, it was uh, July 1st. I don't know why, because, you know, three days later, we'd have to take a, a weekend off or uh, because it was, it was July 4th weekend. But anyway, uh, 
we started on, on, on July 1st, and we turned on the cameras. And then we suddenly realized what the studio could do. And within several months, we had ourselves a really good-looking TV show. I had a virtual set with a, a big window in back of me, but we had graphics that were on in back of me and so on. And we simulcast it using a thing called Your Muse, which was a very inexpensive live streaming facility out of the Netherlands. And this went on for about, uh, this went on till, uh, till New Year's um, and, and when Albert decided that, you know, he really had to, had to go out and figure out what he was going to do with his life. And it, it wasn't necessarily going to be this. And, um, it j- and we were also having trouble with audience. When I first went on, I had just a huge audience. And then it started to dwindle. And I, I think part of the reason, this was the TV audience. The reason the TV audience started to dwindle was that to watch this thing on the Internet, say using an iPhone or whatever, used up a large amount of bandwidth. So that you, if you had like uh, two gigs of usage a month or something uh, from uh, AT&T, that could be eaten up by just listening to us for three or four days. So pe- at least the TV thing, the radio thing didn't use up as much. And so people suddenly realized when they started getting these immense bills that I can't do this every day. This is costing me money. And uh, the numbers started to dwindle. So the numbers started to dwindle. Uh, um, Albert started to say, hey, you know, I really think I need to go looking for, for work uh, because this thing wasn't making us any money. And I said to myself, well, I'll try and keep the TV thing going. And I, I tried to keep it going uh, with Girlfriend as the uh, running the controls, but nobody could do it like Albert did it. He, he, Everything he gave to the radio program, he gave to the TV shows. And if you ever get a chance, we have them up on Roku, on our Roku channel. And, and if you can go see them, they're really phenomenal pieces of video work on the part of Albert. Um but that was all over, and uh, the TV thing, then we started doing it once a week, and then we started doing it once every three weeks. But in the meantime, uh, right after January 1st, I said, well, why don't I just do the radio program or do a show at 10 o'clock in the morning, and um, we'll just do, a, do an audio show. So that's exactly what I did. And Albert said, well, I'd like to do a show too. And I said, okay, you go on after me. So I did an hour, and he did an hour, and we did that for quite a while, for a bit, and people started calling, and I found that I need to have a phone system that I could use, okay, and uh, I, it, to go get the phone company to install four lines and then, you know, get myself something to, you know, like you do with, at a regular radio station was just too expensive, but you know what was really cheap? A thing called Skype, and people could then call me, and I could even see them if I had to. Okay, and I could put upwards to I could actually put upwards to 25 people on the line at the same time. But video wise, I could only do nine beside myself. So I I said, okay, well, give me a call. And the first day I just took one call at a time. And then I said, oh, wait a minute. Why don't I just start grouping these people? And then we started grouping the people. And then Albert started doing the same thing. And all of a sudden we came with this concept of the citizen panel. So now. This was a whole new thing. And, and Albert, uh, we had called the thing the Great American Broadcast Network. Uh, the reason being that I had always used that uh, from an old movie um, uh, years earlier. 
back in the uh, back in the 30s, I believe, called the Great American Broadcast. And I always thought that was a great name for a program. And secondly, I wanted to use it before any conservative talk show host decided to use it. And so we did the Great American Broadcast. And then Albert one day said, you know what the initials are? And he pointed it out. And then we started calling it GabNet, right? Which stands for Great American Broadcast Network. And we started doing this. And then Albert said, oh, I want to do it at night. So he wanted to do it at, you know... Eight, uh, nine, uh, 9 o'clock at night. And I said, okay, well, then I'll move to 10 o'clock at night. So now we weren't daytime, we were nighttime, which would have less of an audience because less of an audience is available. But it, it didn't matter because I had found a way to start playing these shows over and over again on a 24-7 loop on this network that we had. Well, that's pretty much how GabNet came to be. And that's what has been here to this very day. I still go on Tuesday through Friday doing a two-hour show. We've got shows by other people on the network, and um, it's, uh, it's, been a, it's been a nice original idea for me to come up with after all these years because, you know, as you get older, you lose the ability to be inventive and to suddenly realize at 74 years of age that I had suddenly invented a whole new form of radio, okay? A whole new way of doing talk shows, in which you just didn't have you know, the host talking to one person and then another person and then another person and maybe being uh, contentious and very opinionated. Instead, you had me, and I had upwards to nine other people on the line at the same time. And sometimes they'd argue with each other. So a lot of times, a couple of them were Republicans and, and right-wingers. A couple of them were left-wingers. Some of them were in the middle. Sometimes we'd talk about uh, movies, and sometimes we'd talk about politics. But it created a whole new kind of feel for a talk show that had never been done. It was the reinvention of talk radio. Uh, a forum that had remained pretty much the same way for about 40 years. Funny thing about it, though, I got some very nice publicity from Talkers Magazine. They have a website, and it, it, people in the talk business read this thing, right? It's a, it's a, major, uh, a major place for talk people to check in every day to see what's happening in the talk business. And they did two major articles on what I was doing and this little revolution in radio I had created. And to show you how terrible my business had become, you would think that somewhere, someplace, someone would read this thing and say, let me give Alex Bennett a call. I just want to talk to him. Not to put me on the air or to make me a host of one of their shows, but to find out how he does this or to listen to it and find out how he does this. I didn't hear a single word from anybody in the broadcasting business. And that really was amazing to me because what I had come up with here was a new way of doing talk radio. And nobody was interested because the business had gotten to a point where all they cared about was not losing money, not taking a chance. And so after all of this, all of these chapters in my life were right up to date, or at least to this point. There may be more, 
As my life goes on, I may add more chapters, and hopefully I will, because there'll be something really interesting to tell you and to talk about. But in the meantime, this is where it kind of doesn't end. It just kind of relaxes for a moment. Next time, we put an end to this audiobiography. This has been Life in the Passing Lane, an audiobiography by me, I'm Alex Bennett.